Hello and welcome to the Authentic Audience Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ritma. Here, we believe success is inevitable and everything is possible. On each episode, we get real about the entrepreneurial journey and look at what it means to lean into your intuition, feel in alignment with your business, have coffee with resistance, and trust in abundance. We answer the tough questions. How can we show up authentically in business, with integrity in relationships, deeply seeking in our spiritual practice, and with grace in motherhood and beyond? This podcast celebrates the anti-hustle, healing from toxic productivity, prioritizing rest, and discovering tools that will support both your healing and business growth journeys. Your time and energy are precious resources, so thank you for being here. Your presence is a gift and your business is thanking you. Get ready to get real, get honest, and keep guys and welcome back to today's episode of the authentic audience podcast i'm your host krista ritma thanks for being here we have a really special episode and conversation today you're just in for such a treat and before i share with you a little bit more about today's episode i'd like to introduce you to our guest nancy luna jimenez is regionally nationally and internationally recognized for her highly effective and insightful trainings inclusive facilitation and dynamic speaking for groups of diverse ages industries and cultural backgrounds in 1994 she founded the luna jimenez institute for social transformation to deliver unique programs that guide individual healing and transformation, cultivate initiative and leadership in social change, and create more just and equitable workplaces and communities. An IAF Certified Professional Facilitator Master since 2021, Nancy facilitates individuals and groups in understanding how systemic oppression affects their lives, their work, and their relationships with others then supports them to envision and make revolutionary change through personal healing, cross-cultural communication, group consensus, organizational inclusion, and short and long-term strategic and action planning. Of Puerto Rican and Chicana heritage, Nancy was born in Detroit, Michigan, and was raised there and in Tucson, Arizona. Nancy currently lives in Portland, Oregon. And this conversation today... I think re-listening to it, I may have cried at least three times. I'm super vulnerable. Nancy's super, super generous with her time and with her gifts, and you're able to witness firsthand what she's all about. And I don't really want to give too much away other than met Nancy a few months ago through a mentor, Erin Weed, and I saw her speak, and all it took was for her to stand up and look at me and say, I believe you are good. And it shifted something inside of me and made me want to lean in a little bit closer and hear more what she has to say. And I've just had the absolute honor of working with her over the last couple of months, learning more about her business and her mission, and I'm just beyond inspired. And I know you will be too. So we're in for a treat. Stay open. Stay present. Thanks for being here. See you on the other side. Nancy, I just feel so honored to be sharing this space in this way. I feel we've spent a lot of time in like different compartmentalized 
spaces together on this journey, it's fun to dive in together in this way. So I've been really looking forward to this and welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Krista. I also, I'm also excited about this. Obviously, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and I, I love how you call people in and really make space for what's emerging in them. So thank you for that. Mm, yeah, I've been really thinking about this episode today and what feels important because so much of what you do and share feels really important to me. And so getting to use this time, you know, to really spotlight and bring new life, new breath, because that's what you've done for me in this movement, in this racial healing space. And so I want to get into all of that because there's so much there and so many shifts and I've written so many notes, but I want to honor something that's really real right now because I've been really blown away and I think many people have been blown away by your public, would I call it a public processing, sharing more open than most people in the West, let's say that, about this journey and your mother's passing. And I just want to honor that because I just feel her so deeply. And from what you've shared this last month, it's just been so present for me. So whatever's coming up around this time for you, this potency and what it means. Let's just like anchor into what's real right now. Yeah. Thank you for the invite, Krista. My mother's passing was not a surprise. She officially went into hospice in January and there's something, oh, there's so many things. My, I had this commitment. I don't know if it was in spoken out loud to her or not, but as long as she was alive and she wanted to fight to be alive, I would be with her fully. And when she was ready to go, I would also be with her fully. And that has meant a lot of things. It's meant like when she was alive and not ready to go, it meant having thinking well about how to advocate for this woman in many ways who had advocated for me my whole life in systems of classism and racism and sexism, even though those are not words she would have used but she knew the forces that we were working within and under and often against to have, to have lives of joy, to have connection as a family and to have a sense of my worth as her daughter. And so it meant, you know, having to fight alongside her to really like internalize the messages that she imparted with me my whole life, which was, you know, you don't give up on what is right. You don't give up on what is fair. And there's always a way. And so that's been the process. You know, there's a million stories I could probably tell you about what that was like. And then the day after I arrived for my monthly visit in August, the hospice nurse said, your mother is in pre-active dying, which, you know, I was that many days old when I learned that was a thing called pre-active dying. I had no idea. And of course, it was this moment of like, okay, it, it seems like she's made a decision. You know, and my sister said she was waiting for you. Both my sisters were like, she wasn't going to do this without you. And it was never anything we spoke about, but I knew like I was being called into the next phase with her. And my sister, my younger sister was ready to take her, uh, make space in her home, neighbors organized. I think I, you know, I shared a lot of this in my journey, just 
how held we were in community. And I really want to emphasize this. Like, I think it's inhuman and a result of oppression that any of us die alone. And I don't mean just the person who's dying dies alone, but any family member dies alone with that person, that there's not a holding of community around this passage. And I've shared a lot also about, you know, there's so much preparation for birth and it feels like nothing for death and that it's so isolating and it's so hidden and it's so medicalized and sanitized and it's an industry. And that was just not what happened for us. And I feel like I really got to, with my sisters, with my partner, with her neighbors, with my brother-in-law, my nephews, my my great nephew, his mom, we just came together. We held my mom and I've never watched a body go to its end. Like my father, I was with my father when he died almost 10 years ago this Christmas, but it was different. Cancer took his body and it was absolutely transformative for me, but I'd never seen this way of grieving. And yeah, and I, I realize in retrospect that doing the work of healing from oppression has made it possible for me to be present with really hard things that I wasn't, I wasn't trained to know how to do this. It's not like I, it's not, I'm not a professional in this. And I was really, I feel like there was old knowledge in me of like my people, especially my mother's indigenous people. We've you know, before we were colonized by Spain, we would spend two months or a two month long festival of just being with the dead and cemetery and celebration and understanding of life cycle, not being afraid of death, which of course has been shortened to Dia de los Muertos, which was kind of piggybacked on All, All Saints Day and All Souls Day for the Catholic Church. So I feel like I, it was old knowledge, but it was also like the, the body of healing I've been able to do to be present helped me really be with my mom all the way till her last breath. And share it. That's yeah. the part Same more. that really landed and stuck with me is you were able to hold that sacred, sacred space for yourself and your family, but were able to take us on a journey with you. And so there was like two radical things happening there. I think one was this practice and like you said, it was ancient. I asked you, I think, right when I saw you after, like, where did you learn all that? What a great, I want that. You know, I mean, well, what I secretly want, actually, we'll come back to that. But I felt really refreshed by it. I'm really, you know, called to you for so many reasons, but it just get, keeps getting like more obvious to me as to why. And just seeing the way that you took your life's work and the talk that you walk even into one of the most, you know, losing a parent and doing it in such a celebratory, like ancient ritualized way that felt so radical and feeling safe to share that was to me just a testament to the work to be able to do that. And so for me, it really came full circle. I also have like a deep love or just excitement around grief and dying and that process that we go through. And what I was going to say a minute ago, you know, I have like this secret wish to be a Hindu in Nepal because 
I just want to be carted through the streets with people wailing and like a scene and a party and the burning and the dancing in the sacred rivers. And as a Westerner, getting to just witness that process was life-changing. But just seeing death mm, just honored in such a raw way was really life-changing for me. And I remember I've spent so much time thinking about how I want to die since then. I'm a big follower of Ram Das, And so to see you, it, it felt powerful to me to witness. So thank you for sharing with us here. And it's just such a universal experience that we all go through, but yet so different because we all have such different things that have equipped us um, with what we can do. And so I would like to use this opportunity to shift into what has equipped you because I would like you to do most of the talking from here on out. So what I want to say is this, my experience of racial healing as a white woman has been really not high energy, not high vibrational until I met you. So I had a craving for it. I had a desire for it. I am obsessed with women. Um, I believe we're like the mycelium, you know, I, I don't get me carried away. And so like, I know, I know I have a deep knowing. And then the remembering that came through meeting you and hearing the way that you speak about social justice and goodness has just really relit a fire in me that I know has always been there, but I didn't know. I just didn't know how to navigate the feelings that I was having. And hearing you just name how I was feeling as a white woman, which was bad. <laughs> I feel bad in my body about this. And for a long time until very recently, I felt that no matter what I did would make it worse. It was performative. I felt guilty. That felt bad. Everything felt bad. But you reminding me that I am good got me back on this path. And so I would love to start with that reminder for everyone listening. I know I've read Nancy's intro, but for you to just share like this core message of your work and start with that. The other thing that I had written down that you said the other day that I want to anchor everyone listening into is what your mentor shared with you, which was, if you want to end racism, you have to help white people heal. That was not the invitation I thought I was getting when I went to that workshop for the record. When I heard you say that, I was like, how do we, how did you begin to swallow that? Like, what did that even land? How did that feel? And from getting from that moment mm -hmm. to the grounded in goodness moment now, mm -hmm. please, like. <laughs> All right, let's see if we can unfold a little bit of this journey with you. Um, let me just say that. I want to acknowledge how bad it has felt and does feel. And I would imagine for those listening, if you are, and we're talking about racial healing here, so I'll, I'll spend a minute here. If you are a white person connected in any way to the history of genocide and racism and colonization, if you know anything about it, you're going to know that you feel bad. Now, 
if you don't know you feel bad, my guess is either you're numbed and or you've been disconnected from knowing that, which doesn't mean you feel good. And I want to be really clear about the difference. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. None of those are actually feeling good. And I would say the, the paralysis that comes with feeling bad and not knowing where to go with that as white people, and particularly with the, what I consider destructive narrative, but also the narrative that reinforces dominance of privilege is, it's confusing. It's, it's a bit of a mindfuck actually for white people. It's, I feel so bad, but I'm being told I'm, I have so many benefits. I'm, I feel like guilty and I feel deep shame if I'm really connected to what it means to be white in this historical political moment, social political moment, and I'm connected to people of color and I want to have relationship and I want to end these oppressive systems that I know are not good, but I'm being told I'm benefiting and I have privilege in them. Where am I supposed to go with that? And so I think the very first time I heard Lillian really debunk that myth, that destructive narrative, that as long as we use privilege language, we will keep reinforcing the dominance. And I have, you know, there's three ways that I think that happens. And I think it's important because some people listening to this will be like, no, I mean, frankly, the biggest resistors are going to be white people, mostly white liberals to this language, because it's sort of given a platform to perform goodness. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Most it, white it's mostly white liberals are the most because it's going to require giving up dominance to let go of that narrative. So even Peggy McIntosh, who coined the term white privilege, knew that there were things that she was throwing into that invisible knapsack that didn't really work in that frame. So, and everything's kind of gotten thrown into that language. And I make a very intentional practice in the work that we do on giving up privilege. That's the work that we specific do, not just with white people. I mean, I'm going to use white people throughout this, but I do this work as a USer because I operate in the non-target space globally that way as heterosexual, as able-bodied. So it's not just, I'm not only speaking to white people here, but I'm going to use that frame for that, for this conversation. I think that's just fine. Yeah. Okay. But I do think the distinction of non-target is just really an interesting and very polite way. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's a really, again, it's a language Lillian gave me, which I didn't have. I mean, before that, it was like there were racist and then there were, you know, the rest of us. And I wrote this down as something that the language that you have given to this, I think, is a big piece of the work and of giving, I mean, giving something a language, it's like astrology or anything like, you know, once you have the language, you have connection, you have community. And so I wanted to just pause on that non-target for a second to really make sure that we're understanding what Nancy's saying by non-target. So can you just repeat that one more time? And then we'll we'll be happy to do that. So I will say that when I first came into this work, I was a, I was convinced that people were bad that were on the non-target side. In other words, the perpetrators or the oppressors were the bad people and the oppressed were the good people being victimized by the bad people. So that was the frame. And I think that's a really common frame. I think mostly we realize that language doesn't work, but that dichotomy is still in place. 
And I want to be really clear. There's so now white people separate themselves from the good whites and the bad whites. So there's still the dichotomies playing out there, right? So that frame, even though it sounds simplistic, has not gone away. And when I attended Lillian's workshop almost 30 years ago, that was the first time I'd ever heard described that the oppression is what's bad. It's never the people. Mm. And when we demonize each other and we put labels on each other to describe the experience of oppression, we become identified with the oppression, which is counter to everything we're trying to do, which is to end the oppression. So for example, you know, if I say you're an oppressor, right, then that's now your identity. It's like saying you're a racist, which is why we have people saying, I'm not a racist. Like, I agree. Nobody is a racist because that's an identity. Nobody's a racist. And people who are not targeted by racism, which in the system of racism, which is based on the ideology of supremacy of white people and the denigration of people based on darker skin colors, white people are the non-target group. And you have a relationship to power that is different and distinct from the relationship that I have as an indigenous raised Chicana Boricua in this body who's darker skinned and has that different history together, we need to work together. And I believe in our heart of hearts, we want to work together, mm-hmm. all of us to end the oppression. So I would be on the target side of racism. You would be on the non-target side of racism. And we are working together to end racism, not take each other out, not reduce ourselves to labels and sort of like why we've stopped using the word slave. And we talk about enslaved people because slavery was a state, it's not an identity. And so that's the same separation that I make in this work using target and non-target. Thank you. I think the language you use is really important Mm -hmm. and also really disarming Mm -hmm. to say non-target versus target. There's just like fact in that. (laughs) Like it's, you can't argue, Mm -hmm. you can't argue that, you know, I am not a target of racism. And so therefore I am a non-target person. And so for the sake of this conversation, we're saying white people and to go even further, I think white women for me, because I find there to be just, yeah, a lot of work there (laughs) for me. And I would offer that white women are both target and non-target. And yes, and so the target on sexism is a body of work that has, that gets mushed together when we are merging Mm. those oppressions and we try to put everything in one basket. And it's, it's more nuanced than that. This work is not a soundbite and it's not that easy to categorize. So I would. Now, do you guys see why I'm so obsessed? (laughs) (laughs) So I would want to hold on to white as non-target. And I think there's a whole, I mean, maybe we'll come back another time and we'll have a conversation about sexism. I think there's a whole world I would love to have with you conversation about the work that I think we're doing pretty radically, how white supremacy ideology separated us as females who are connected to reproduction and actually needed that separation to happen in order to transfer our roles as property in various ways. So female, white females were property within the institution of marriage and females of color, particularly black females were chattel slavery property, but both were property within the institution of patriarchy and white supremacy. That's another Mm -hmm. podcast for another 
I just, you just got my wheels so spinning <laughs> with that. I'm going to just have to compartmentalize okay. that over there, we'll that over there so that we can come back to that yes. because thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So let's come back to the white privilege piece. So I think there's everything that's gotten lumped into white privilege is actually, I would pull out into three different categories. So there, so what's an example of white privilege that you would, so why don't you, let's throw out one that you think is an example of white, that's called white privilege. Um, I think an example of white privilege is being able to walk down the street Mm -hmm. late at night and not fear that somebody else is going to fear me as a threat. Great example of what is not white privilege. That is an experience I would want every human being to have. So I would call that a human right. Nancy, okay, you're going to get me because I know I know where we're going now. So should I try again? Yeah, we can try. We can try again. Yes, let's do that. (laughs) Okay, okay. Let's try another one. Just so people really understand. An example of white privilege, I would say to, well, now you're going to get me, but I was thinking to be able to, you know, get a loan or just be seen as like a more valuable, I guess, investment or safer investment, getting like a credit card loan or something like that. Yeah. Everyone should have access to that. Everyone should have access. So when we call, so there's two other categories of examples. One example of things that white people have access to, uh, or they call a benefit. So it might be like to be an individual, like to be given credit for my efforts, right? To be, have to be seen as a meritocracy, which none of us are an individual. We're social beings, but part of the ideology or the belief system that's been installed on white people in order to oppress others. I want to be really clear about that. It's not how you came into the world. We would call uh, obliviousness. So there's like just a cluelessness that you're connected to the larger social systems and to people. And I think that's what's allowed the extractive level of extractive economy to exist at the level at which it does both of people and of land and resources, because there's been such a deep separation and disconnection that's made white people oblivious to the impacts. Like your lively, your life is connected to other people's lives, but the insistence that you individually have accomplished everything, or you only need yourself or this idea that it's all about how hard you work that is a hurt. That is a that disconnect. Is one, that is a huge one for me. The other one I just thought of as a good example that should also just be called a human right is in the healthcare system. Like I see it as, you know, white privilege to have access to certain things. We've been completely mislabeling and that's been really detrimental. And I'm now seeing that because what I was thinking before for everybody else who might be having this little epiphany in this moment that I have previously had and continue to have around using the word privilege in general is that that is othering. Like that is saying that there is another that is less than. And so to use the word human right, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. We've just been saying the wrong thing and words matter. 
They do, Krista. So my experience is most of the things that we call, quote, right privilege are either obliviousness, a human right, or an entitlement. And I use entitlement really specifically because entitlement is a way of thinking about what you are deserving that other people don't deserve. And that's different than how that language of privilege. And if you think about privilege, privilege is seen as a special right. That is what the definition of a privilege is. And that you're, that it's supposed to be special, right? And in, in our view, my view, these are human basic rights that everyone should have access to. They're not special. And I want you to think about what that does on the target side of this story. And this is why giving up privilege, giving up this language, really where the resistance comes from are people that are struggling, white people, to give up dominance. Because what I'm hearing is if I want those privileges, now hear my language, in other words, if I want to be seen as a full human being, that means I need to assimilate and become more white. So do you see how it's contributing now to the internalized genocide and internalized racism that now people of color carry? Because we're like, well, that's the only way I get to be human is to assimilate into the special group, the group that has these special privileges who are the white people. At no point are white people being asked to to not have the dominance. And quite the contrary, we're being asked to become dominant like you and assimilate to be like you. And assimilation is a form of genocide. So there's that angle as well, where it's, it's, this is why it's counter. And the big radical shift that Lillian offered to me 30 years ago, and I, I actually want to come back to your secret wish, if you're willing to do some vulnerable work with me here, and you can decide, obviously, is that actually white people have lost. If we keep coming at it that you have these special things that you can dole out and give to people, you keep the power because you keep the special things that you give out. But if we can make the shift that you as a white person, and then I use person specifically here, and all white people can understand that you have actually lost on the non-target side of racism, then you will no longer work to end racism for us poor little brown girl who hasn't doesn't have it good. You're going to fight to end racism because you are you've done the grieving of what you've lost and you don't want that for the next generation. You don't want that for yourself and you don't want that for your people. That's going to require that you a are connected to your people, which is one of the hardest things for white people, white liberals to do. You want to demonize all the ones that look ugly and are showing that nasty racism patterns that you don't want to be associated with. And the more you keep separating and separating, the less effective you're ever going to be in making this change happen, Krista. And so what does it mean to go back and love the the, the uncle who says all the inappropriate stuff at the table? You know, some white people tell me like, oh, I don't talk to my, my mother anymore because she's this, like a badge of honor. And I say, oh, in my heart, I'm like, mija, which means my daughter in Spanish. If you can't go home and talk to them, if you can't connect there, you are useless, useless to me. You're useless to people of color. You're useless in this battle to end the racism. You've let the racism win because it separated you. That's what the purpose of oppression is, is to divide us. So the radical act is reconnection. It's reconnection to ourselves, to your heritage. So what I, when you said your secret wish, Krista, was to have a Nepalese Hindu funeral, all I could hear is the grief that your people got disconnected from how to die in a human way. 
I mean, I feel this so deeply. It makes me then, I think this is so, like, it just feels so white to that, you know, like my then reaction is the, like, the saving or the instead of healing together. And so I think that's been the radical shift for me in just how I define what it means to end racism. It doesn't mean othering anymore. It means healing together and what healing racism looks like for the future, for the children that we're creating this world for. And wow, I just have the biggest deja vu. We've done this before. And so having it come full circle and meet you and like just it's it's a spark. It's like a reminder of how you ease people into this work. So all that Nancy's speaking to me about and working through, I don't feel stupid. Like I don't feel embarrassed. I don't feel shame. And these are the kinds of programs and practices that not just white people, but everyone needs the reconnection, the not othering. And I feel that you hit on something really big that I want to unpack for one moment. And I do want to apologize because not apologize. I don't know the right way to say this, but I do feel I'm catering this a little bit towards white women because that's my audience. So if you're listening and you are not a white woman, I love you. (laughs) Please do not leave me. I just need to make sure we're all on the same page with this like powerful work that I'm learning and that I'm trying to integrate in the right way. And so when you said to me a few weeks ago, it reminded me that like white people don't really like ally together in the sense that we don't see ourselves as part of a group. And you started to explain this a little more about the individualism. And I really, really relate to this topic. And it's gotten me really thinking about specifically, I I keep saying the white women, like the sisters in my life that I feel that I have not seen as my white sisters in the same way. Like you see a group of Latino women together and it's like, I want to be a part of that. And because being a white woman, isn't that cool, I guess, or progressive right now, we've, we've lost community in a way or a piece of this. And can we go back to that piece about just making our identity so separate in general, and then like a little bit deeper into how we do this as white people, because this is really detrimental and sad. And I wasn't even aware of it. So I think maybe it's the oblivion, check the oblivion. But can we yeah. talk about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's the key of this work, Krista. It really is. It's how A, for white people to notice. I mean, that's the biggest step is you're separate. And I love how you said like, it's not cool. It's not cool. In fact, it, it's it's uncool if you're bonding and connecting with your white sisters and you're doing it in particular ways. And, you know, and as long as that is the frame of racism, everything we do looks colorful and you feel bland and it feels like everything we get is at your expense. And, and it sets you up in just the way that you described that you're longing to fill the void with other people's culture, whether it's the funeral or the sisterhood, it's where the root of appropriation comes from is a, and that's how I describe it. It's a black hole of disconnect that lives in the body, in the soul of white people. It's what you paid an unaware dues that you paid 
to lose your connection to your ethnicity, to your beautiful European languages, to your beautiful European spiritual spirituality, to your to your connections as a people. You traded all that in when you changed your name at Ellis Island or whatever port of entry that the immigrant family or refugee family, because many people that came from Europe were refugees, to take on this identity called white, which was the identity of power. And any group of people who have been systematically disempowered and come with pain that is unhealed will, in an effort to not feel that pain, reach for something that looks like power. And then you replicate your pain. You replicated it systemically. That's why we have these English only laws. Not like I never want anyone to lose the language that connects them to their grandmother, which you got separated from. Like I have listened to countless white people say, I couldn't talk to my grandmother in Polish or German or Yiddish. And instead we have these laws that like now no child that comes to the U.S. will ever, if they speak a language other than English, be able to talk with them. And we're going to force you to learn English in schools. It's a violent act that stems from pain that was unhealed. Lillian reminded me again and again, every institutional oppression white people experienced in Europe except racism. And then they brought all that pain over And then they just replicated the genocide that they've experienced with indigenous people here. And they stole and extracted. All of this was set up. It was about pain that never got healed. And now we're in a framework where you're supposed to be benefiting and you've got all the goods. And then you're wondering why you feel so empty and while other people's culture looks so good and you just want to fill this void and it never will fill the void, Krista. I love that you said you feel sad. Until, until until you can well the, actually the void will never be filled. This is the thing. Oh. This is the hard. This so this is the hard news here, Krista. Yeah. <laughs> so this is why the pull to want to do all the things on top of the emptiness is just emptiness with a bunch of actions that are not meaningless and are performative. That's what we're seeing in racial justice spaces with really well intentioned, and I believe well intentioned white people wanting to do all the things, but they've not touched the void. They haven't actually leaned into the grief and the sadness of the loss. And partly there's been very little permission for it. And partly you've been numbed to it and told that numb is feeling good. You've been lied to that. Well, you can feel better if you do this thing, you know, go on a vacation and extract from this you know, tropical island and drink a bunch and then you'll be happy. And you come back from these vacations, not probably feeling those things. And so the work that I'm wanting to do with white people, actually all non-targets, myself included, is can I touch the grief? Can I grieve the deep loss that I can never get back? So whatever, and I'll use the example of your wish, right? Whatever the rituals were around connected death that your people lost in the process of assimilating into a white identity in the U.S. are lost. And you get to grieve that. There was a cost. There's a cost to dominance that we don't talk about. And that is the cost for your white people. That's one example. The separation is one on all levels. And I'm going to use this example of how, how to die in connection. After the, the grieving or as you grieve, 
you will find ways to reconnect to what is yours and you won't feel a need to have others traditions or rituals. And that's, I think the key work here is how do we not take what is not ours to fill the void or to supplant the work of really grieving the deep loss? There is a deep disconnect. And the first step in my view is reconnecting to that, that loss, each white person, just heart open. And I think just listening wherever you are, you can name that loss. You can name, you can touch it. I can, it has a name for me. Her name was Oma. You know what I mean? And that's the thing we're avoiding. And so I think it's hard because it means opening up to grief. Tell me about, it tell me about open- Oma, Krista. Let's do this personally. Who was Oma? Yeah. I mean, I've talked about this before. My grandmother basically disowned me for not wanting to be Catholic. And so threw me out of her heart, threw me out of her life. And I was at such a vulnerable age. It sent me on such a search for belonging that took me to Nepal and it you know, took me understanding Hinduism and sitting with Rinpoche's and Buddhism. And, you know, long story short, I'm back to Jesus. And that has been very healing. And I found Jesus through Neem Karoli Baba, who is Maharaji. I'm a devotee of Ram Dass, brought his work to the West. And so again, the seeking, the seeking, the seeking, the seeking. And craving that belonging of I'm in the right place. And so hearing about uh, Neem Karoli Baba's description and experience of Christ brought me back. Another witch brought me back to Mother Mary, right? And so it comes back and it keeps coming back. And so all I need to do is like lift up that <laughs> little, I just crack that little box of the deep righteous Catholicism healing that I have to do. And it's right there. And I avoid it like we, and I think that's what my question was is as somebody who is deeply committed to doing this work, I'm like, do I really have to heal this thing with my righteous Catholic grandmother in order to end racism? Like that feels hard. Yes. Isn't there an easier way? Is she still alive? No. Perfect. Beautiful. I mean, it's, you can do the work whether they're alive or dead. This was your mother's mother, your father's mother. My father's. And I even set a healing portal around me of don't let her touch me because I'm so witchy. I'm constantly working with other realms and other things and other people and energies. And my grandmother's mom is right or my mom's mom is right here right now. Um, we're best friends still. And so it's just been like a really like hearing you speak and remembering the things that we've lost, you know, and thinking about my own life, that was just the wound. It was just right there. It, it sort of darkened or painted black my childhood in many ways and my relationship with God. And now I'm uncovering all that because I'm doing this work, but that's not like light work. Like I have a full-time job. I have a baby, you know, I'm trying to like take care of my mental health and my family and be a good friend. And so it feels like doing that work, although I know it's like the work of my life. Oh, I can do that next year. And so what do we do now? Well, what Lillian would say to me, and I'll say this to you, Krista, is 
couple things I'll say right now. You're perfect. You're fine. You're whole. You're intact. Doing this work from a place of feeling deficit or less than is not the place for them to do this work. I just want to, I just want to hold that out for you and anyone else who needs to hear, hear these words. So I want you to just, you know, take that in to, to hold that as true. And what Lillian would say to me is when, where you are is harder than where you fear to go, you'll move. And there's no, not me, not some awesome podcast, not some great book, not some great in whoever, no one's going to make you do the work. I mean, if they do, then it's oppressive. I'm not here to make anybody do anything they're not ready to do. It's really important for me that people have sovereignty, agency, and consent at every point of this path. And it is a radical act to make the decision when you're ready. And you'll, you'll know because nothing's working. Like everything you've been doing isn't working. And you can, you're in the exhaustion of it. You're in the frustration of it. You're in the stuckness of it. And you don't want that anymore. And you'll know not just, it's not just you that's going to do it, Krista. Like we can't do this work alone. We need each other and we need community to do that. And that really was my intention in setting this. I didn't want to run a business. I didn't start this organization 30 years ago because I'm an entrepreneur and I want to have a business. I could give two dits about that. I wasn't interested. I was interested in not a remembering this work. I think we leave the things we need to do our own work in. And I knew when Lillian blew my mind and I left that, I was like, if I'm not leading this, I can't hold on to this. If I'm not talking this through in my head or doing this with other people on a regular basis, nothing in my society around me is going to tell me, A, this matters or B, that this is happening, to, that this is true and happening to me right now. And so working with Lillian and, you know, I really busted through her isolation and our partnership, which lasted 20 some years on the road traveling together was radical for me. And we, we held each other and all of our community held us. Like people have come back to me. I I sent you a text like 30 some years ago, people are like, you said this thing to me and I didn't, I wasn't honest with you then, but I'm, I see things now. Like we're all on our own journey in our own time and our own place. And if, and when you're ready to say yes, and you want to be held to do this work, I want to say to people, it's not easy. I can't say, oh, you're going to feel great. You're not, you, but you, you're not going to feel good, but you're going to know you are good. And that is a way more radical act. And frankly, until we know we're good, we can't end racism. We can't. We're going to always be in the deficit of the feeling bad that those emotions are going to drive a bunch of behaviors that are fundamentally destructive and reinforce dominance. That's, that's where the bad feelings are going to go unless we do that healing. In my view, I'm sure there are lots of people hearing this thinking they have other paths. And I want to say power to you. If your path is working, stick with it, stay with it, trust it. We see the results in our own experience when we, we give our heart to something and we stay with it. And if something's not working, consider something else. And maybe this is an invitation to you to consider this path. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it has done for me. It's an invitation to consider this path. Yeah. And when you first said, you know, my name is Nancy and I believe everyone's good. 
I just kind of like looked up and you're like, but my work is to end racism. And I believe everyone's good. And it like gave me pause. And I think if you too feel that pause when you hear Nancy say that, it's worth exploring and, and getting curious about because that's what I've done. And having that realization that my work is not limited to hiring women of color, making sure I have scholarships and flexible payment plans available so everyone can thrive. But it's actually looking at what I've lost and turning inward. And it's what all the best teachers say. All of the greatest leaders give you your power back and make you feel empowered in their presence, not inferior. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why your work works. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited to invite anyone who's moved by this conversation to join me in this because it's not comfortable. Obviously, I'm super open to this. And still, I'm like, isn't there anything else we can talk about? <laughs> then, like, we have to go there, you know? And so it's so funny because I'm just watching my own resistance as I'm sitting here. And so I just want you to feel like not alone. And I think that's what Nancy made me feel. And I'll say, as a white woman who really has the deepest, most pure intentions to be in service and integrity for the highest and greatest good of all, and yet no tools that I feel were in resonance. Because there's a lot of tools. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of noise. But I was feeling wronged. I was feeling bad. I was feeling shame. And then you told me I was good and reminded me what I lost in this experience. And so remembering all of this has just been such a beautiful reminder. And it's like redefining social justice work for me. It's not what you would typically think of when you think about going to like a social justice training or seminar. It's deep personal self-growth. And somebody very close to me said, not only did working with Nancy heal my relationship with my mother-in-law, but it helped me find my place in the movement to end racism. And if that's not a testament, I mean, it's a win-win to do this work. So I just want to congratulate you and thank you for having patience because you must have a lot. (laughs) My dad, my dad would disagree with you. He would often say, he would be like, his joke would be like, I think you might need an extra bag of patience. And he'd watch me like running around doing stuff. And then maybe two bags, it would be his little joke. But I will say that I did see something with my dad. Just this way that he reached for humans, no matter where he was, no matter who they were. And, you know, I love when you said it's like a win-win. It's like, actually, I don't think any tool or training or practice, if you can't bring it home with you, if you can't immediately see application in your relationship with your children, your parents, your siblings, your partner, partners, then it's a, it's a performative act. It has authentically, it has to be integrated into every part of who you are and in how you view your life. And this is why this is not a behavioral training. I'm not doing a checklist. I'm not going to give you a bunch of skill sets. I'm going to give you a language and a process and you get to put yourself through and in the process. 
you get to do that work. You get to decide how deep and how quick and what it looks like. But if it's not one, something you can take home, then it's not worth taking in my opinion. That's actually really good advice. Yeah. It's what transformed my relationship with my mother. I mean, to be present with my mother when she died, Krista, I, no one who knows me knows I had an easy relationship with my mother and my mother was not an easy, you know, her patterns were harsh. She, she was not loved by her own mother. My mother does not remember being told I love you or getting a hug from her mother until well after we were born. So 28, 30 years of age, you know, there was so much pain that never got healed. It got passed down. And the best thing I could figure out, which I know I'm not alone, was get the hell out of that house, you know, and I left home and I moved away and no, I never moved back. It is true. And, you know, there's some pain for me about that. What I did do is I figured out how to love, how to find the woman who gave birth to me, understand what happened to her. And we did our healing together. I found my way. I hadn't prayed the rosary till my mother forced me to pray the rosary when I was in elementary school during, um, on a good Friday and something when she was dying, I pulled out a rosary that I'd forgotten. I'd gifted to her and she was no longer conscious, but I know she was there and I would hold the beads in her fingers and I would pray. I'd forgotten most. I remembered like three of the prayers, but I was like, thank God for the Google. And I was just like, and we'd move and I could feel her fingers press the bead with me. And when I dropped it, she would search for it. And I, I knew that we had found each other in like a different way. I, I don't need to be the Catholic she was. I don't need, I know that we have each other and I don't need to, I mean, I had a whole big show of leaving the Catholic church and like how it's horrible and wrong. And every institution embedded with institutional impression is a messed up institution, but I can no longer, I can no more leave being Catholic than I can leave being female or I can leave being Chicana or Boricua. Like it's a part of how I know who I am and how I am in the world. And I don't want to just get stuck with the nasty patterns. I also want the beauty of connection and community. And, and I'm being honored to get to give the eulogy in the, my mom's final mass, you know, on October 7th. And I'm, I'm so prepared to embrace and hold all that she is, including the hard things that happened to her, but from a place of healing, we healed. Mm -hmm. And if that's not a testament to be able to bring the work home, I don't know what is. Ram Dass always used to say, if you think you're enlightened, go home and spend a week with your family. And <laughs> Can I get an amen? Yeah, yeah. We often, I will just be like, that is where the work lives, folks. It's that like is where the work lives. And I think that is the reminder, the work to end racism and the social justice and the oppression. It's just, it's you and you. And I think it's also really empowering because there's actually a lot we can do and it's not as discouraging or I don't know the word that this society has, you know, told us as white people that it's like going to be really hard and we're going to lose all our rights. And it's just not true. It's about, you know, healing ourselves and healing each other. And I think we all want that because we were all born with that. We are all good. And, and that reminder has just been one of those micro shifts on my path of like, oh, <laughs> 
and it just changes the course of your river. And now I'm going this way. And so I just thank you for bringing me home and for the work that you're doing. And I really want to invite everyone listening to join me. If you feel called, let this be your nudge and reminder that you're good and and we can't do this alone. So I would love for you to share. Obviously, I'm going to put in the show notes, but what's coming, what's exciting, definitely get on Nancy's email list. I cannot recommend that enough, but any things that you would recommend looking into joining on your site? Like, where do we begin? Where do yeah. we start? Yeah. So by the time this podcast drops there, it could be available. I'm not sure it will be, um, but it will be coming. We have a three-part, it's free series that is called Grounded in Goodness. And we would invite you to download that, to spend some time with the teachings there. I think it's a really beautiful synopsis and introduction to what it is that we're all about. And again, if you, if it meets you, if it speaks to you and you want to take the next step, there are many ways to do that. We have webinars that are available on demand. So if you're interested in the teaching, there's content in webinars, but the healing spaces, you kind of got to, you got to got to be present to heal. You got to heal to be present. So we're, we're all about the live. So it could be live virtual or live in person. We have coming up October 4th is our next, it's called getting listened to. And it's really about the, the, the process of healing when we get listened to that happens for us. And that's a three hour offering. And that'll be October 4th. And then in November, we have our one of our foundational offerings, which is called what happened to us. And that'll be November 7th, 8th, and 9th. And that's obviously a bigger commitment. It's three hours of virtual each day. Our time is US Pacific. So it's 10 to 1 our time. So wherever in the world you are, that will be the time zone. And there's some pre-work that's involved, but it's really where the healing space happens is in the virtual workshop. So those are two that are right away upcoming on our website that you can check out. And for our 30th anniversary next year, we will be gathering in a place called Chacala, Mexico, and Chacala is Nahuatl for shrimp. It's a shrimping village. And with your permission, I'd love to share a little bit of this, the power of this place. I'm not someone who's into doing a bunch of workshops all over the world that make people fly and have impacts on the planet. So I, I want everyone to know this is the very first time I'm doing something like this, and I don't plan on doing it as a regular thing. But in honor of our 30th, um, we're gathering at a place called Madre Jave, and Dr. Uh, Laura de Valle started this place 40 years ago. They just celebrated their 40th anniversary when I was there earlier this year. And the intention was to bring resource to the community that would then support health work. It started, she started a free clinic, and now she has a whole workshop to create, to teach vocational skills to local communities so people can have jobs and not feel pulled to immigrate or leave their communities. And this place is really beautiful and it's a very meaningful place because Lillian did work there some 30 years ago. And so her work on healing has been integrated into how they do their work there now. Just a few workshops that Lillian did and they really took it and ran with it. So we will be doing that at the end of April. It's a week long, end of April, first weekend of May. And it's just for women. So I know you're feeling the women energy. So that's a place where we'll gather And one of the things that I have found, we will do beautiful teaching in the mornings, but it's been really important for me that women have unstructured time. So we've intentionally kept, I know, nothing on your schedule, nothing to show up for, 
All the meals are beautifully prepared and grown locally in the farm. And we'll get a chance to know that community if you want. And the afternoons are left unscheduled. And I'm going to just throw this out so people know what to expect. I, I Women know we're asking people to agree not to do the things that numb us while we're there, which means to not have alcohol, to not do caffeine. Of course, we will never police, but it's a way we want to be open to what the healing can look like. They, they have great drinks in their bar and they have an espresso machine. So it's not like it's not going to be tempting, but I want us to know like we're coming together around doing a really emotion, open emotional work. This isn't a moral thing. This is just that I know I use sugar to shove feelings down and I don't know anyone who isn't using some of those substances to push down the feelings. And we want to open those feelings in the presence of Yemaya and in our mother. And it's all about coming back to reconnecting to our mothers and to our leadership as females in a way that is healing. Because I promise you, every woman listening to this, you're being seen as someone's mother if you're in a leadership role. And they are projecting every feeling they have about their mother onto you. And you are more than likely reenacting your mother's patterns or, or flipping your mother's patterns in how you're leading in the planet right now. So if we don't go back and do this intentional, Did you have to drop that bomb <laughs> on this, this last just as we're heading out the door. I mean, why not? <laughs> it's so real. It's so radical. Please stop what you're doing and follow Nancy. Share Nancy's work. Come with me on this retreat. I can't stress it enough how I think just important it is right now for us, for each other, for ourselves. We are unwell. People are mentally unwell. Take the time. I'm with you. But when you said dedicate that time to have somebody listen to me, I realized I have healed more in the last six months paying my therapist to listen to me. It's the most healing thing in the world. Yeah. Getting listened to. So please join. Please spread the word. And if you're feeling called, reach out to me. I love having conversations. I'm just super open. And I love to learn. And I just would love to hear from you. So I can't thank you guys enough for being on this journey with me. Nancy will be back for a part two, a part three. We'll do an in-person live. I mean, I can see it all. You're stuck with me. I couldn't be happier to be stuck with you. I love you, Krista. Thank you so much for holding this space, for inviting me into your community, but more into your family and into your heart. More soon, more soon, more soon. I'm just, yes. So grateful. And so it is. And so it is. I hope you all really sit with and give yourself space, whether it be, you know, just a few minutes right now, or I'm going to take a cue from what I've learned for Nancy and schedule some time for yourself to process and grieve some of what came up for you today. I would love to connect more about this and create a bigger conversation here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And until next time, keep growing.